Now, Backyard Millionaire. How to create wealth where you are with what you've got. Here's your host, Chris Story. Well, as promised, I want to talk about that epic National Association of Realtors lawsuit, the class action lawsuit that NAR lost, along with Keller Williams and uh, one other group. Multi-billion dollar lawsuit. I mean, this is massive. 5.9, was it 5.6 billion? So what's next? Now what? And I want to talk about it from a couple different perspectives. In the main thrust of it, just to be frank with you, my main concern is how will this impact you? I mean, yeah, of course, in the industry, have been for over 22 years, looking obviously, well, okay, how are we going to conduct our business? What's going to happen You know that, that we're going to have to deal with? What are the, the ramifications of the fallout? But, but always with that end in mind, how will it help you? How will it confuse or con- how will you, the consumer, the end user of this industry, how will you be impacted and affected? And there are times, I'll be very frank with you, Frank being the pun here, there are times Frank Dodd being one of those, if you'll recall, is the knee-jerk legislative reaction to the 08-09 mortgage meltdown, all of that stuff that had happened, which many argued was as a result of previous governmental intervention requiring substandard subprime type financing on some sort of social justice level, then comes a collapse, then comes a bunch of reform coming out of the the Senate, Dodd-Frank, and a lot of things, baby out with the bathwater, a lot of overreaction, everything was upturned in our industry, and how it impacted you was on certain disclosure levels at the closing, time of closing, time of application of mortgage, time of refinance. There were some things that we all have to kind of still deal with, which now have become normative. It's just the way it is. It's not something that, that's really that unfamiliar today, so we don't even think about it. It's just the way it is. In Alaska, where I practice, we, in about 2005, if I'm not mistaken, went through a complete complete restructuring based on a lawsuit that occurred in Anchorage where a bad actor had done something completely unethical, untowards, completely like mind-boggling to your average agent. To the average person would look at that and go, how could you how could you have thought that was right or ethical? How do you sleep at night when you do things like this? Well As a result of that, there was a legislative action and reaction locally in our state of Alaska, in our legislature, led by then, uh, was it Norm, Norm Roquefort, Norm, or am I thinking of a salad dressing? Anyway, there was a guy back then that was in the the legislature here in Alaska that was uh, well-versed in real estate, had himself been a realtor, and understood these topics and brought it to his colleagues and said, hey, I think we can do something. And in the state of Alaska, our way of doing business as as agents was completely upended, upturned. And in fact, the common law of agency was abrogated in the state of Alaska. As such, it no longer exists in Alaska. And we took on 
what was then called the Colorado model, which was licensee. So agents no longer, even though it's the popular nomenclature, people know a real estate agent is still what nine out of 10 people will say an agent, even agents, even licensees. I just said it. Even licensees will sometimes refer to ourselves as agents. It's just, it's in the lexicon, it's in the mind. But the reality is on the ground, in reality, we are agents no more, no longer since about 2006. So when you're working with a licensee in Alaska, you're presented with what's called a consumer pamphlet, a real estate consumer pamphlet put out by the legislature, put out by the actual, the real estate commission. And it just identifies who are you working for? Who do you represent? What duties does the licensee owe you as either a customer or a client, two different levels of service, um, can't lie, cheat, steal. Of course, none of those things are ever acceptable, no matter who you're representing or assisting. You as a licensee are required to account for monies in the transaction, to account for uh, contingencies set forth in the agreement. All of these kinds of things still fall on your shoulders, irrespective of who you're representing. Compensation is, is nothing to do with representation. doesn't matter who is compensating which party. The representation still has to be outlined. Anyway, my point is we went from agents overnight to licensees and completely had to reorient, reset, and continue on serving you because that is our ultimate goal is to serve you whether you're buying or selling renting leasing whatever it is so what's going to happen now and and i guess i'm giving you a bit of a background here to say look we've already gone through a couple of up endings a couple of completely from the ground up restructuring of what we know as the realtor real estate agent industry we've already gone through this so now looks like there's going to be more to come as a result of these epic class action lawsuits. I mean, look, the National Association of Realtors might, I mean, don't take it from me. I'm just saying from the sidelines, might end up going bankrupt, might end up going through a restructure. Who's got $5.6 billion? I mean, not even Gary Keller of Keller Williams has got this kind of money. So it's going to be up in the air as to what happens. But I wanted to talk about, okay, well, what's next for you? What can you expect? And I would predict in the, in the short term, not a lot. I don't think you can expect a lot to change in the short term. There's a lot of talk of appeals. Will they appeal? Uh, will these defendants appeal? Um, the question then becomes, can they get a bond secured such that they can go forward with an appeal? And when you're talking about a 5.6 or whatever billion dollar damages here, Who's going to bond that? So that's a that's a big question mark, if there'll be an appeal or not. Buyers going forward, in, in my estimation, my never-to-be-humble estimation here and opinion, buyers can expect to sign, probably starting today, tomorrow, start looking for what's called a buyer representation agreement, a buyer broker agreement, essentially something that, that it's, a, it's just a short couple-of-page document that just says, hey, um, you know, references a consumer pamphlet saying, I'm representing you, the buyer. Uh, and secondly, how is compensation going to be structured? If this transaction, you know, consummates into a closing and a recordation of the sale, here's how I get compensated, here's how much I get compensated, and here's who is compensating me. And that's going to be negotiable. I think that'll continue to be ongoing negotiable. But that's, that's a form, that's a document that is going to be just used. A colleague and myself are meeting with uh, a member of our legislature here in Alaska on Tuesday 
to start talking about very proactively, not waiting around for the Association of Realtors. Um, clearly, they can't get anything together. Um, and I've been a member for 22 years, so I'm not slamming my own organization other than I'm saying this has been a complete dismal operation. They've kept us not informed at all on a state or local or national level. I mean, it's been uh, just an echo chamber of rah, rah, pay more, pay more, pay more. Um, you know, here's a nice fancy pin, donate more money. Um, so they, they've let us down completely. So we're taking the ball into our own hands and we're going to start talking to the legislature ourselves proactively, um, myself and another broker that are looking around the corner saying, hmm, why wait? Let, let's be proactive. Let's get something done here. And another issue that we've identified that is something that, for transparency that we're going to bring up to this uh, member of our legislature as well. And so we're going to be trying to walk a couple of these things forward without waiting for the Department of Justice, without waiting for uh, attorneys that smell blood in the water to start eyeballing Alaska. So we want to be proactive in that. And I mean, the reality is, and, and we're, we were uh, participating in a, uh, a private meeting yesterday and I told you I'd bring you the net results of that meeting effectively. This is a, a, a very big national attorney that, that gave a presentation. And bottom line, agents aren't going anywhere. Realtors, realtors might be. But remember, realtors, that's a trademarked organization. Okay, it's over 100 years old. I've been proud, like I said, to be a member for uh, more than two decades. But forget that word, but just use it in the sense that you think of a real estate agent versus a member of this trademark organization. But realtors, the, the, the people you know, like, and trust, and love, and have helped you through good times and bad, helped you through buying, selling, renting, leasing, managing your property, all, we're not going anywhere. That's not gonna change. So again, I, I'm seriously wondering why I'm a member of this organization anymore. Uh, on a local level, it, it just turns to, uh, and this is not unique to my area, but it just turns into some infighting. The expression is, oh, I hate my local board, but I love the state board. People that like to climb the ladder of their association uh, with aims and eyes towards national service and so forth. And, and you're treated you know, with uh, almost like royalty when you go into the headquarters at DC or, or in Chicago. And um, it, I'm reevaluating everything. Are we going to remain part of that organization. I don't know. That's up for grabs right now. Our president resigned amidst, what, 12, 13 counts of sexual harassment allegations um, yet to be settled. Our CEO has resigned just recently. Our lead counsel was just fired. I mean, this organization is topsy-turvy, to say the least. Here's one. In about 2007, I believe it was, we paid Hillary Clinton $200,000 to come speak at a National Association meeting during the lead up to her presidential campaign, I think that's influence peddling, if I'm not mistaken. But back on point, for you, the consumer, as an outfall from this landmark, massive class action lawsuit, don't expect a lot to change. The industry is going to change a little bit as to how we, we present a couple of forms to you, probably, but you're going to continue to be able to count on the realtors you know, like, and trust, and experienced agents, realtors, um, you're still gonna receive more in use value than you pay in cash value. Do you know who I am? I don't know how to put this, but I'm 
kind of a big deal. People know me. I'm very important. Uh, I have many leather-bound books, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing like closing off and capping off a serious conversation with Ron Burgundy. I'm Chris Story. You're listening to The Backyard Millionaire. Up next, is a 1031 exchange right for you? Find out. We'll be right back. The Cookie Thief by Valerie Cox. A woman was waiting in an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book but happened to see the man sitting beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag in between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. So she munched the cookies and watched the clock as this gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, well, if I wasn't so nice, why, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered, what will he do? With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother. This guy, he's got some nerve and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She'd never known when she'd been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat, then sought her book, which was nearly complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned in despair. The others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. You're listening to The Backyard Millionaire, how to create wealth where you are with what you've got. It's my brother on the guitar, Garrett Storer, right here. So is a 1031 exchange right for you? So understand that it can also be called a like kind exchange or a starker exchange after the, uh, I believe it was the senator, whomever was first introduced this into law. But a 1031 exchange, there's a few things you need to know about how to do it, and, and I'm not an expert in that field. I've, I've been through them myself personally. Tiffany and I have used a 1031 exchange on investments, and I've helped a lot of people over the years exchange money intrastate, out of state. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something I've got a great familiarity with, but um, this isn't a technical talk per se about the ins and outs of a 1031 exchange. It's rather to determine if it's right for you. So I want to go over a few different criteria that I would walk you through if we were having this conversation and you're in the midst of trying to make a decision. But understanding 
with an exchange, it has to be like kind real estate. It's um, there's certain rules and ramifications of what you can and cannot exchange or change, and you never touch the money. First off, just know that if you're selling a property through a 1031 exchange, that money, that cash from the sale, the proceeds from the sale, never touches your hand. First off, that's the first thing to understand. It never. It's not even your money. It's, it's your liquefying. Think about it like you've got one solid asset and you're, you're going to transfer it into another solid asset. While it's liquid, it's in a pipeline that doesn't ever come to you. It goes into a trust for your benefit and it's legally bound and, and it's in trust and it's very well protected, that money, but you never see it or touch it. That's the first thing to know. Secondly, um, an exchanger will act on your behalf. You still sign the documents. You still approve everything. All the terms are set by you, and there's a fee for it. And that fee is very reasonable. I mean, I'm just I'm not going to say what it is ubiquitously because it, it's going to vary depending upon your exchange, depending on what you're exchanging. But I will just tell you that the last time Tiffany and I went through this, it cost us just under $3,000 for the benefit, for the service of this exchange. So that just puts that in perspective. Um, of, of what the cost is. So as you think about that cost, you think about it, you don't touch the money, you direct the money, you have a certain amount of time from when you make the sale, you have to identify three properties, exchange or replacement properties within 60, uh, excuse me, six months, 180 days to identify those properties and negotiate in the 90 days thereafter to close on one of them. You can't just close on something that's not on your list. Um, also, just a little piece of housekeeping, when you make a contract for sale, you must also include in that contract your intentions to do and participate in a 1031 exchange. And it's irrelevant to your buyer. If you're the one selling the property, your buyer doesn't care that you're participating in a 1031 exchange because there's no cost to them. So it's it's pure and simple. It's just your expense, and that's identified in that contract. Okay, so that's just some housekeeping, some basic logistics of how this works but how do you determine if it's right for you? First off, you need to know your tax liability. What are you gonna owe? What's the capital gains tax going to amount to on the sale of this property? Because, well, for example, Tiffany and I evaluated a sale of a piece of land and our tax consequence was gonna be, just for round numbers, I'm making this up, but this is close enough. I mean, I'm not looking at the settlement statement to tell you exactly, but this is very, very close. It was gonna be about 4,000 bucks of a tax implication. Well, I just told you the cost of an exchange was going to be somewhere between 2,500 and three grand. And our feet were going to be held to the fire to reinvest the monies in a hurry. And so we just evaluated that and said, well, since we know what our tax liability is going to be according to our CPA, um, let's forget it. Let's just take the, take the hit now rather than defer that debt because you're going to owe it anyway. All you're doing with a tax deferred exchange, 1031 exchange, you're deferring that tax liability down the road. And eventually you or your heirs might, that is going to come due, death and taxes, right? It's going to come due at some point, but you're deferring it down the road. So we, in that instance, determined ah, for such a small consequence, uh, liability, nah, forget it. We'll just pay the tax, be done with it, take the capital back and then reinvested at our will and whim, depending on when and where we want to. Okay, so first off, know your tax liability. Secondly, know where you want to reinvest the money. If you're going to do this, let's say the tax liability is gonna be far more than the cost of the exchange, 
Like, a, let's say you've got a tax liability of 50 grand, maybe 100,000, something like that. Wow, okay, 3,000, big deal. Who cares? Pay the $3,000 for the exchange company. That's well worth it. But where do you want to reinvest? You have to know that, like the back of your hand. In fact, unless circumstances prevail that will disallow you to spend time looking, do that first. Figure out where you want to park the money. Where do you want to reinvest? Where do you want to put this money to work for you? Um, as such, then when you make the sale, you'll already have your three properties basically ready to identify and you can move forward. But you also want to make sure you're, you're, you're not just doing this. You're not just rushing into, I got to park this money somewhere to avoid this tax liability today. Uh, so know that market very well, inside and out. Hopefully you're reinvesting within your own market. If not, know the market where you wish to reinvest. That's the second piece of the puzzle. Is a 1031 exchange right for you? Okay, thirdly, I would say, what's your why? So why are you selling? Do you know 100% why? Maybe somebody's just come along and offered you stupid money and you just can't resist it. You're like, I gotta, I gotta do this. This is crazy. They're gonna pay me what? All right, now's the time to get out. This is gonna be maybe the, the, the peak for a while. I wanna get out now, but know why? Or is there a huge amount of work that's gonna be coming due? Is there big systems within the property like roof or electrical, who knows, something that's coming due and you know it's coming due and you're like, you know what? I wanna get out now and, and let, somebody else can take on that burden down the road. I, I want out now, but what is your why? Or I want to ladder my property Let's say I'm exchanging two or three single family residences for an apartment building. Okay, well that's a great why. Okay, you're you're looking at cash flow. You're gonna realize some appreciation. You wanna capitalize on that. And then you want to focus on cash flow and, and liquidate these homes and move that money into an apartment building, earning probably far more cash flow for you than the homes were. Okay. That's a wonderful why. And, and understanding too, just because the exchanger has taken the liquid proceeds of your sale and held it in trust for you until you close on the property, they're not in any way entitled or an ownership or there's no mandate for them to manage it. You can manage it yourself. It's your property. That equity is yours. It's just deferred, tax deferred. So if and ever you go to sell it, then you're going to answer the little tax questionnaire. Did you participate in a 1031 exchange when you acquired this property? If you tick yes and you're not you're not moving it into another exchange, then, well, that's when it's come and due. So it's going to, it'll follow you, but you're not obligated to have some third party manage it for you, like some sort of a, 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 a real estate trust or something. It's not like that. It's your property. Do with it as you please thereafter. It's just the liquid money in the interim is never going to be in your account or in your hands. You don't get your sticky little fingers on it. By the way, you are listening to The Backyard Millionaire. I'm Christopher Story. This is where we talk about creating wealth in your own backyard. Please don't mistake any of this advice or commentary that I'm making as tax advice. I, already, I said right from the start, I'm not a tax advisor or expert. I'm telling you anecdotally how I've used this program, how I analyze using this 1031 exchange and or helped clients realize a sale and participate in a 1031 exchange down to earth brass tax about it should be between you, your accountant, and an exchange expert. And then finally, I guess I would ask you, so the first off, we want to know your tax liability. How much will you owe? Where do you want to reinvest? Thirdly, why? Why are you making this sale? Know that inside and out. And then 
I guess I would say probably even as a prelude to all of those questions. So those three questions are important. Maybe fundamentally the first question is, do you know the current market value? So if somebody's come along, like I said, and offered you stupid money in your mind, like, I can't believe they're going to offer me this. Maybe you don't. Okay, fine. Maybe you think it's in excess of what market value is in your mind, but still know it. Get an outside opinion. Get what's called a broker's opinion of value. We do not charge for those by and large. So if you're, if you're in the process, let's just say you were going to come to, to me or anybody at Story Real Estate and say, hey, we're thinking about selling this. Um, what do you think it's worth? That's part of our job. That's what we do. We're, you're not going to, you don't have to pay for that. That is a service with which we provide to you. So then you can start answering these other questions. I love me some tax deferment. You know, it's putting the, the reason this law exists is to put the capital back to work. So you can put it back into the community, put it back into real estate, put it back into opportunities for the greater public good, which is what's happening when there's private ownership of real estate. You're listening to The Backyard Millionaire. When we return, we're going to talk about times like these and how can you invest in a hot market and still win? When we return, stick around. You're listening to The Backyard Millionaire, how to create wealth where you are with what you've got. I'm Chris Story, along with Mr. David Webb, bringing you what my mom calls the greatest show on earth. You, now, you can't argue with my mom. Let's leave the mothers out of this. You can go to my website at ilovehomeralaska.com. ilovehomeralaska.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can also search our books. We've got four books there. Also, our podcast. All of these podcasts plus are on top of the world radio program. All of us there for you at ilovehomeralaska.com. So how can you invest in a hot market? How can you invest to win in a hot market? Anywhere, anytime, and you can. And so what is a hot market? Well, a hot market would be described probably as maybe what we're experiencing today. So you're, you're, you're seeing prices uh, much higher than they've ever been historically. That's across the board. That's coast to coast across the country. Interest rates higher than they've been in a very long time. Let me read you something that Rhonda Johnson with Cornerstone Home Lending sent me just a moment ago. Um, this is a little uh, meme she's put together. It says, in 1971, the interest rate for a mortgage was 7.33%. If you'd waited for interest rates to go down, you wouldn't have invested in a home until 1993. You would have rented for 22 years waiting for rates to go down. Meanwhile, the value of real estate quadrupled in that time. Don't wait to buy real estate. Buy real estate and wait. Marry the house, date the rate. That's from Rhonda Johnson at Cornerstone Home Lending, rhondajohnson.net. So how can you invest to win when rates are high, historically high, when prices are historically high, availability is historically low? You know, the inventory, everybody's talking coast to coast, or lack of inventory. Well, how do you invest to win in a market like that? Well, people are investing every day, every single day. Investments are being made, incredible investments, wonderful investments, but they're measured individually. So I'll get to that in a minute. But the first step to invest in a hot market and win is to decide, make up your mind. Now, was it Henry Ford? Henry Ford said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right either way. If you think you can carve out a great deal today, you'll be on the lookout for one. 
your RAS, your reticular activating system will be looking, your brain will be searching, you'll be making relationships, you'll be talking to people. I told you before, when I read Creating Wealth by Robert G. Allen, I started talking to everybody that would listen about the fact that I was going to make two investments that year with zero down. And that would start all kinds of amazing conversations. People would say, well, how? And I said, I don't know. I'm going to do it though. No money out of my pocket. Like, you mean, not? no, none, none. And I was on the lookout and I, I constantly was talking to people, not obnoxiously, you know what I mean? Like, in the, I wasn't obnoxious about it. I'm just saying it was something that it was really on the tip of my tongue, top of the mind. And so I was constantly talking to the right people about it. As such, two opportunities availed themselves. And, and I, 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 I say I wasn't looking for them. Yes, I was. I was looking everywhere for them, but these came to me. I attracted them to me because I'd been vocal, because I'd been looking, because I'd made a decision. Decidere from the Latin meaning to cut off. There is no other alternative. If you make this decision, then you will find the right opportunity for you in a hot market with the highest interest rates that you can remember and with the highest pricing you can remember, you still will find a deal for you and make a good investment. Secondly, in a hot market, you need your tribe more than ever. That means you need to be in close contact with your favorite real estate broker. You need to be in close contact with your mortgage lender. You need to be in close contact with your credit, i.e. through your mortgage broker, find out where your credit's at, correct anything that's wrong or erroneous. You've got to have your tribe assembled You've got to be pre-qualified and ready to roll. You've got to have some money set aside, but you also have to have access to money if you need it. You have to have access to other investors, outside investors, hard money lenders. You have to have alternatives ready, your tribe assembled, your inspector ready to go. Do you understand when you make an offer, and let's say that you foreshorten the inspection period, you've advantaged yourself over somebody that might even be offering a skosh more? It's such an advantage when you can foreshorten some of those contingencies and or maybe in your tribe you have a banker, not just a mortgage broker, but a banker that can float you what's called a bridge loan. So you can bridge between buying this home and selling your old home if you need to, which by the way, I have an email from William coming up in just a minute. I'll answer his questions that actually pertains to that. But assembling your tribe in a hot market is as invaluable as it ever is. No matter what the market is, you really should have a, a collected tribe of experts that are there for you, your team, your people, they've got your back. And I, I always put realtor at the top of that list. Have a realtor because we have, if you don't have your own tribe, we do. And we can help you assemble that and, and create relationships and inroads on your own. So thirdly, to invest in a hot market and win, learn your market. How do you know it's hot? How do you know when a good investment is, is, is right for the picking or not? You've got to know your market. So you have to have that fingertip feel for what's happening in your market. You have to know what's going on in your state, in your borough or county, your area, your city. You need to know what's happening for any industry that maybe is impacting housing or could impact housing. I don't know if I'll get to it, but I was just reading a really great section in Gary Eldridge's book, Real Estate 101, on how the ball of the Berlin Wall actually negatively impacted San Diego. I mean, it caught San Diegans off guard big time and, and created a, a real financial fallout. And who would have ever thought that? Well, Gary did. He knew it was coming. So learn your market. Know what affects and impacts your market. Fourth, 
how to invest in a hot market and win. Know your return on investment. In fact, I add a P to the ROI. I call it PROI, your personal return on investment. That's not something that can be calculated for you. There's no metric out there or subscription or guru that can teach you and tell you exactly what your preferred or specific personal return on investment ought to be. You have to decide that. There are ways to, to decipher the cap rate. There's ways to look at absorption rates in, in relative to rentals and future values. All these kinds of things can be calculated. You should be familiar with these terms. You should be familiar with the financial instruments that are out there and forecasting and all of that. But you need to know your personal measure of return on investment. What was it worth to you? What are you looking for? And I have a, I have a piece that, that spells all that out. Um, I don't know. I don't know if we'll get to it today or not, but that's something you can personally talk to me about anytime. You can always email me from my website, ilovehomeralaska.com, and I'll help you dial in on your own personal return on investment. And I, I guess this would be the fifth piece of how to invest in a hot market and win. Remember, the game is called buy and hold equals gold repeated four times. If you own and control four homes, just four, in your own backyard, that's all you've got to own and control is four you'll retire a millionaire. You'll control well over a million dollars. You'll control massive amounts of cash flow, tax benefits, all kinds of benefits to you. Owning and controlling homes in your own backyard, buy and hold equals gold. And lastly, how to invest in your own backyard and win in a hot market, be patient. Be patient. Be on the lookout but be patient, be willing to wait, be willing to analyze 100, 10, 3, 1. Remember Dolph DeRusse's formula? Look at 100 properties, look at 100 deals, look at 100 opportunities, get really intimate with 10, make three offers, end up with one. That takes time. That takes time and it takes patience. There have been opportunities that I've passed by and regretted because I was being a little too patient. I was being complacent not patient. And I'll never forget one time, Tiffany and I were looking at a commercial building and the owner was a friend and uh, his own realtor. He was his own broker. And, um, but, a, but a friend and I liked him. I loved this building. I wanted the building, but I wanted it at my price. And this was a number of years ago. I just, I was confident that I was going to be able to get it at my price. It had been on the market a little while I thought I was the only one interested in it. And we were really close, embarrassingly close. Well, I'll just tell you, we were $25,000 apart. And I, I feel myself flushing right now as I tell you this story. We were only 25 grand apart. And I had the audacity to drag my feet. And I was being patient, using air quotes, complacent really. And... I called them up and we were about a week out of contract and I called them up and I said, and I'll never forget because I was driving down the road. Tiffany was actually driving. I was riding in her car and I was feeling like I'm the, you know, I'm, I'm pretty cool here. I'm going to tell them something. So I called them up and I said, hey, getting ready to go on a little European trip. Let's pick this negotiation up when we get back, when I get back. How about that? I'll call you when I get back from Ireland and... Uh, We'll pick up the negotiation. How about that? And he said with glee, I could, see the, I could see the Cheshire grin through the phone on his face as he told me, oh, 
well, you have a wonderful trip, Chris. And oh, we ended up just accepting an offer and that property is now under contract. Oh, oh, man. Every time I drive by it now, I remember dragging my feet. And that's cost me a lot. I mean, we made other investments, we're fine. But I'm just saying that cost me. Dragging my feet cost me. So don't mistake complacency with patience. Patience is not pushing beyond the measure of your own personal return on investment. Complacency is assuming that you're going to get, you're going to sharpen the pencil a little bit more to your own detriment to the point that that, that property is worth so much more now, these f- six years later, so much more now than that twenty, that paltry twenty five thousand bucks. It was. It's just. Um, well, yeah. It, but it, here's how I like to look at these things. And Tiffany may differ. I should bring her on to talk about this particular deal. But she may differ in this. But I feel like what we learned was invaluable by procrastinating, by overplaying our hand and allowing a 25K difference there to stop us from that investment. I feel like we learned a lot and it was worthwhile. You've got mail. All right, we've got mail from William. He went to our website, ilovehomeralaska.com. And I realize I'm just up against the clock here. I may have to, let me just read you his question and then I'll answer it on the other side of this upcoming break. So let me just read you the question. Again, this is an email from William and he writes, Chris, we're buying a new home, well, new to us, so to speak, and can't decide on whether to keep our existing home or sell it. Our family has outgrown it. What do you recommend? All right, so we'll talk about that. I've got a lot to recommend there. Also, I want to talk a little bit about the butterfly effect, what I told you um, Gary Eldred wrote about in the fall of the Berlin Wall and how it impacted property values and real estate investors in the entire housing industry in San Diego, which is like, how? How was one got to do with the other? Well, I'll explain that and read just a little bit out of Gary Eldred's great book called Real Estate 101. By the way, just full disclosure, it is part of the Trump University, or at least it was part of the Trump University, which I know went bankrupt, or I don't know what happened there. There was something that went on with that, but I don't care. This is an incredible book. Nice little breather with some classical music here. You're listening to The Backyard Millionaire, how to create wealth where you are with what you've got. We'll return with William's email and the butterfly effect. Don't go anywhere. Remember, no matter what happens in life, remember what Napoleon Hill said, with every adversity comes with it, the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Your job in adverse times, through the difficulties, through the dark days of life, whatever throws at you, your job is to look for the light. Your job is to look for the greater benefit, the equivalent or greater benefit, and you will find it. You're listening to The Backyard Millionaire. I'm Chris Story. This is the show about creating wealth where you are with what you've got. William's got a question he wrote in at our website, ilovehomeralaska.com. He wrote, we're buying a new home, well, at least new to us, can't decide on whether to sell it or not, their current home, because they've outgrown it. Their family's outgrown the house that they currently live in. So, They want to know, William wants to know, should we sell it or keep it? And I love this question because it imputes a desire. It imputes a desire to own it as a rental. 
right? If they, if he didn't have that desire, he wouldn't be asking a question. And the other obvious piece of this puzzle is William must be pre-qualified for the new home without selling the current home, or he wouldn't have asked this question. He would have asked a different question. So if you've got the choice, William, and it sounds like you do, to keep this home that you're currently living in, hold it as a rental, put it into a rental portfolio, even if it's all the rental you own, that's fine. That's house one. Move into house number two and rent out house number one. And I guess I would ask you a few different questions before you decide that or as you're in the decision-making process. And this could apply to you or anybody else, but William, I'll speak to you specifically. Will your current home cash flow which means you need to know what will it rent for. So what do you owe, if anything, and what will it rent for? So what's your monthly payment? What will the rental be, uh, the rental income be? And is it cash flowing? If you're upside down, how much? You know, if you owe a thousand bucks a month and you think it'll rent for 900, okay, it's gonna cost you a hundred bucks a month to own it. But in a year or two, what if you're getting 1200 1400 Or is there something else coming up like you think it's going to be appreciating over the next couple of years and you don't mind subsidizing 100 bucks a month because you know the value of that property is going to be worth so much more down the road, you're willing to do that. So cash flow is the first thing I'd want you to look at. Will you have any? Number one. Number two, what's the condition of your current home? And by that, I'm asking, is there a lot of TLC is is there anything that's like a constant maintenance problem for you that you're going to be transferring to a tenant or you're still going to be responsible for yourself and it's going to be creating a hardship on you to be going over there and like no maybe you have to jiggle the switch this way i mean just things like that is there anything peculiar about your house that would prevent it from making a really smooth transition into a rental maybe a major system that's going to need updating soon. Like maybe you know the septic systems at the end of its life cycle, or if you've got one, uh, the roof maybe. Like, oh, maybe I got another year or two left on that roof. Is there anything major about the heating system or the water, sewer, anything like that, or foundation, drainage, things that you know are going to cost you if you hold this, and you're the one kind of holding on to this, it's going to actually cost you far more than the cash flow would be worth to you. And you don't care about the appreciation value. You just want to get out. Okay, that's something to consider. And if it's in really good condition or a relatively new home or something like that, then it should transition very smoothly right into a rental pool. Um, here's another one. Will you be able to commit time to this property yourself? Because we call it passive income make money while you sleep. However, we also know you, William, are going to be the one to get the call when something's going on or wrong. So are you able to commit some time to it? Because I always recommend you manage your property for at least one year on your own, if you're able to. It's such, it's invaluable education. You'll be a much better steward of your property, your portfolio, and your wealth management going forward if you can at least try for one year to manage it yourself before you engage a professional property manager. It doesn't mean you don't get advice. Hire a consultant. Meet with your favorite realtor. Um, I, I'm always happy to give management advice. Been doing it for 30 years in, in Homer. I've been managing property for 30 years. I'm always open to giving free advice on that or a consul consultation, a one-time consultation, whatever it is for management. But if you can't commit time to the property, you might want to think about it. You might want to reconsider if you're going to immediately turn it over to a property manager, it better have a lot of cash flow. Um, that's not something you want to be subsidizing uh, for property management, in my opinion. I want you to do it yourself for at least a year. And also, William, because you told me 
elsewhere in your email that you listen to the program, you also know about my four home formula, the backyard millionaire formula, own and control four homes in your own backyard and retire a millionaire, have cash flow aplenty. So is this the first of your four? And if it is, my reaction, of course, is going to be to keep it. But I want you to analyze these questions. So will it cash flow and for how much? What's the condition of the current home that you're going to be thinking about turning into a rental? Is it going to be a a headache and a nightmare for you and a financial money pit for you down the road? And are you willing to commit time to its management? Started my morning out 5 a.m. in my library, as I can be found almost every single morning, seven days a week. It's my happy place. It's a great way to start the day for me. You do you, but that's how that's how I get started. And I was reading this morning just a brief little chapter in Real Estate 101 by Gary Eldred. It's got a foreword by Donald J. Trump. It's as part of the Trump University catalog that they were putting out for a while back in the early 2000s. And I, I say all that because I had this book on my desk the other day. And uh, my left-leaning friend came in, and he was mocking me for having this book. You know, Trump University uh, went bankrupt, and they had to give back a bunch of money. And I don't remember if it actually went bankrupt or if it was just, uh, I don't know. There was some people that sued them, and they wanted to become millionaires overnight and didn't. And I think were, you know, disgruntled and whatever. Anyway, it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend this go into your library, Real Estate 101. Gary W. Eldred, P-H-D, E-L-D-R-E-D is the last name, Eldred. All right, he says, few investors pay much attention to their area's basic employment unless their economy has already turned into a recession. When the Southern California economy boomed in the late 1980s, stargazer investors and home buyers imagined that property appreciation rates of 10 to 20% a year would last forever. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, boy, it just feels like yesterday. Hard to believe that was 1989 already. I can I can remember it to this day. I had a friend who was doing a foreign exchange in Belgium, and she'd actually gone over to the wall and got a chunk of it. And then she brought it back for her senior year and showed us this chunk of the Berlin Wall. Anyway, few potential buyers anticipated any effects on the San Diego home prices, prices or apartment rentals. What was the connection? As I mentioned, the U.S. spending for defense supported thousands of basic jobs in Southern California. After the Berlin Wall fell, Congress quite predictably slashed defense spending. Defense contractors in turn slashed tens of thousands of jobs. Congress also cut back on the number of personnel stationed at the San Diego Naval Base. When employment fell, demand for homes and apartments fell. Nearly everyone connected with home building and home selling began to feel the effects. From builders who shut down their construction sites, real estate agents, brokers, mortgage loan representatives, home inspectors, property lawyers, title insurance companies, apartment property managers, everybody experienced cuts in income, and these depressing effects were rippling throughout the local economy. That's the butterfly effect. You have to know what is coming. 
what is going to be impacting real estate in your area. And then you come back to your personal return on investment. If you've done this correctly and you've invested correctly according to your own PROI, then you're going to have a unique advantage over other people because you have cash flow, you have the tax benefits that are going to continue, you have appreciation you're not counting on because you have cash flow, but enjoying nevertheless. Remember, it's cyclical. It's going to be peaks and valleys, but you're going to be holding through those peaks and valleys. And that means you're going to continue to have appreciation. You have the opportunity for a tax-deferred exchange if you want to, so you can uh, avoid some anomalies within the market or upgrade as opportunities arise. And then, of course, there's leverage. Leverage. You've got 30-year money at relatively low interest rates even today. Even today. But if your investments are uh, from a while back and or going forward when rates do come back down or you streamlined, re streamlined refinanced downward, downgraded your interest rates into the future, which you know is going to be an opportunity in the not too distant future, you're going to be able to weather any storm. And if there's an upturn in jobs or there's some sort of a, um, a cyclical economy change or something like the Berlin Wall fall, whatever it is that might impact a big industry in your area, you're gonna be shielded from it. You're gonna be investing in the bottom part of the pyramid. What I mean by that is the most desirable housing in any and all markets. And so if you were up at the peak with like this really like high-end amazing rental that only maybe a half a dozen people in your community could afford uh maybe a ceo of a big company or something like that then you could be in some trouble whereas if you have what the common housing needs are and you meet those common housing needs you're always going to be safe you're going to be okay you can weather these storms so it comes back to knowing your own personal return on investment. What is it you want to achieve with this investment? You then can weather any storm. It'll be like as unique as your own fingerprint is your personal plan on your return on investment. And remember, buy and hold equals gold. Well, thank you for being here with me. Um, I'm going to post this show to our website here pretty quick. Actually, wherever you get podcasts, this Backyard Millionaire radio program can be heard later on Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, all the places, wherever it gets distributed across a hundred different platforms, wherever you like to download podcasts. And I'm going to keep you abreast of the situation relative to the National Association of Realtors class action lawsuit. As we learn more here, I'll be sharing with you. But I do want to reassure you once again that as a consumer, as a member of the public, not a lot's gonna change in your world. There was predictions that, oh, you know, costs for buyers are gonna go skyrocketing through the roof. All costs are still negotiable, will be negotiable ongoing. It's not going to impact you directly in a negative way. And if anything else comes out of it, maybe just um, enhanced transparency is going to create opportunities that you might enjoy. Maybe, maybe it's going to end up better off. I, I know there'll be some knee-jerk stuff in the interim, but I'll keep you apprised of all that and keep our ears to the, to the ground. And whatever we learn, good, bad, or indifferent, you know that I'm going to be honest and transparent with you and share it right here on The Backyard Millionaire. For David Webb and myself, I'm Chris Story, reminding you, and I really do mean you, can become a millionaire in your own backyard. You have to believe it. You have to be able to imagine it. You have to be able to see yourself as a millionaire, as somebody who wants whatever it is, health, increase, better health, better relationships. It's all there for you in your own backyard. We'll see you next time. <laughs>